Drinking aloe vera daily is a great way to help your digestion and naturally balance your stomach acidity. Yes, you heard that right. You should drink your aloe. Our wonderful partners, Lily of the Desert, have been making the highest quality aloe vera products since 1971. When you drink their aloe daily, you can not only support your gut health, but it is clinically proven to boost your immune system, reduce toxins that prohibit nutrient absorption, increase your daily supplement absorption, and improve antioxidant support. Lily of the Desert's aloe juice and gels are the perfect addition to your favorite smoothie, or you can mix it with another juice. The aloe will help boost the nutrient absorption of those good-for-you ingredients. We love that they grow the aloe organically and from fields to bottle and oversee all processing and manufacturing to help maintain quality and lower costs. They offer a full range of products, including USDA organic aloe juices and gels, condition-specific herbal formulas, and of course, aloe topicals for your glowing skin. Check them out at your favorite local health food store or on Amazon, or you can visit lilyofthedesert.com to learn more. I recently cleaned out my office and I packed up 70 bags of books. And I mean books, heavy books. I didn't have to do my weight training last week. It was, it took me 18 hours to really clean out everything. And it was really nice to reminisce about all these books I've read over my career. That's been just about 25 years in health media. And I just read the most important book I've read in my entire, not only career, but life. And I'm not being hyperbolic. It is called The Invisible Machine. The Startling Truth About Trauma and the Scientific Breakthrough That Can Transform Your Life. And joining us now to talk about it is Eugene Lipoff, MD, and Jamie Mustard. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you for this incredible, incredible book. Thanks for having us. In the foreword, you start with something by Frank Ockberg. He's the world-renowned trauma specialist who defined the term Stockholm Syndrome. And he writes how PTSD should be called PTSI, quote, it's a physical injury, not a disorder. That means post-traumatic stress injuries can be healed the same as burns and broken bones. The wound is just hidden within our nervous system and brain. Jamie, can you expand on this for us? Yeah, I can. You know, when I first met Dr. Lipov, I felt that he had come up with the greatest medical innovation, scientific innovation, human innovation since the discovery of penicillin. And in terms of lives it can and will save, it dwarfs the polio vaccine. Okay. And so, uh, but what was so interesting about it is I I thought, how does everyone not know about this? We can reset the nervous system. And what I figured out was, is that it was very well known at the extremes, 9-11 first responder, Special Forces, Delta Force, Navy SEAL, um, the second largest cohort after the military is sexual assault victims. People were finding it. It had been on 60 Minutes. Joe Rogan, uh, Eugene was a regular guest uh, on The Doctor Show, uh, CBS This Morning. Uh, But what I found was they were always kind of talking about it at, at the extreme. And when I saw it, I saw the living room. I saw a plumber, a CEO, a yoga instructor, people that didn't associate themselves with trauma. And I truly believe that a massive swath, maybe 40 to 50 percent of the U.S. and global population may have this injury, especially in our modern lives. And most of them are not getting it from blunt force trauma. Do not associate with trauma. Uh, Dr. Lipov can explain this further, but I think the more common way that one gets this is uh, a thousand cuts. Carrying chronic stress or allostatic load will change your biology and overactivate your nervous system and get it stuck in fight or flight. And I think it's responsible for a massive myriad of the mental ills that are plaguing our society today. 
And now with, doc, with Dr. Lipov's staggering and Nobel-worthy innovation, um, it can be reset to the pre-trauma state. PTSD is a term that actually, Frank Albert was part of the committee in the 80s that set up the term PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So PTSI, he believes that the name should be changed to post-traumatic stress injury because there is a biological change that actually happens in the body. You can actually measure it. Um, so, in fact, Frank and I were on um, WGN News together Saturday talking about that specific thing. Further, I was able to do a study looking at a survey. We did a survey with 3,000 people, and the majority of people said if the name could be changed to PTSD, from PTSD to PTSI, then they would seek care, which I think wow, is amazing. that's huge. Right. So... With that, I took that information, sent it to APA, American Psychiatric Association. This is who decides on the name change. So we're currently in the running to get that done, like an official way. Uh, Frank tried to do it 12 years ago unsuccessfully, but I think I'll succeed this time. Anyway, that's where we were at with PTSI term. Uh, as far as DSR, the original term was SGB, Stellar Gingdian Block. That's been around since 1926. I've personally, first time I did um, Stellar Ganglion Block was 1987. So interesting set of circumstance I found out when you do a sympathetic system anesthetic, uh, PTSD or PTSI symptoms go away. So then we refined it further. It turns out when you do two injections, there are three actually ganglia in the neck or where the nerves come together. So if you do more, the effect seems to be better. So that's where the DSR came from. You know, this PTSI letter versus a D, right? It's a physical injury. We don't stigmatize people for having a broken leg. But if you have any sort of mental illness, uh, you get a stigma. So Eugene is currently on this, Dr. Lipov, this uh, very, very uh, aggressive campaign to change the term. Uh, but, you know, he kind of understated how important and how powerful it is. Because when you stigmatize people, imagine if we went around blaming people and, and, and looking down on them if they had broken legs. What would our society be like, right? So you have all these people that are walking around with a physical injury to their body. And I can give you an argument that is irrefutable that explains how it's a physical injury, okay? And nobody listening to this would be able to disagree. But you have these people walking around with a physical injury to their body. And they're being told they have a disorder. It's incredibly stigmatizing. And they, and they just get paralyzed. So one of the things that I talk about is there's Dr. Ockbrook wrote a book in the 70s, Coretta Scott King. It came out in 1970. Coretta Scott King did the forward to that book because it was two years after uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. And it's called Violence and the Struggle for Existence that he wrote with a bunch of Stanford doctors. And uh, there's a chapter in it called Biology and Aggression. And he knew before he met, it's so crazy that he, he and Eugene are working together today, because back in 1970, in that chapter, they say, we know 100% this is biological. Because if you, ta if, you, if you take a goat, a chicken, a cow, a cat, a dog, and you beat it or you terrorize it, uh, it, it will change. It will either become very aggressive or very timid, fight or flight. We didn't give it a disorder. We changed its biology. So they, they, we've known this for a long time. It wasn't until Dr. Lipov in, I guess, the early 2000s, he's a researcher doing this research, that he found the sympathetic nervous system and he, and he figured out a fairly safe, uh, fast way to reset the nervous system. It, it changes the world.
I think the I, I think Jamie is absolutely right as far as saying it's biological. So, for example, I treated a dog who had PTSD or VPTSD, which is veterinary post-traumatic stress disorder. So, if you're interested in that, I have a YouTube video of that. I had a newspaper coverage on that in some videos. Yeah, I am. I do a dog podcast too, so that's. <laughs> We can what have you back for that. that. Yeah, I think I'm going, oh, my God, my brain's like even more excited. I, I, I'll send you that <laughs> link. It's kind of interesting. So it, this was, in, uh, so this dog ran away from owner, got stuck underneath a truck and got oh. burned. Oh, God. And his symptoms was the same that he couldn't sleep. He became nasty. He was chewing him swells through his cage. You know, most people don't, human beings don't do that. Right. But everything else, there was significant change. And, and he was taking THC. I mean, what's the difference, really? So we did the block, and he did well. He was able to he calm down. He was much more mellow. How is this not being shouted from every rooftop? Why aren't we hearing about this? We're hearing about psilocybin and, and other, which I'm not putting down. I've heard great things, but it's not the same. So to give you a direct answer to the question, why was it not accepted? I think there's a couple of things. So when I just started this journey a while ago, uh, one of my professor friends said, you have a problem with credulity. It's hard to believe something that simple can work so well. Because it's weird, because the anatomy, most people haven't looked at it until I looked in detail, but everything, like when I wrote a paper explaining mechanistics 2009, I pulled the information from sources that already published. It's not like I just it was available, nobody just looked at it. And it's much easier to understand, or if you think, I mean, it's like, if you think psilocybin is easy to understand, it is not. It is a very complex molecule, it does a very complex thing, but people go, oh, psilocybin, no problem, we get that. Sympathetic block in the neck, highly isolated to one particular system, oh, that's weird. That makes no sense to me. But, you know, ultimately results speak for themselves. I mean, we had, I've literally treated thousands of people. Uh, military has treated thousands of people. And the results have been really exceptional, I think. Uh, and that why it's not accepted, I think that it's part of it is this, there's no real... Psilocybin is a very simple model to use for pharmaceutical companies. This is not a simple model. I think Dr. Lipov, as usual, is underselling himself. He probably has to a little bit because he's a scientist. I'm an artist. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a, a book uh, where, you know, it's a conversation between an artist and a, and a scientist. You know, when he describes the DSR, what he's describing really, if I can get a, a quick layman's explanation, uh, you know, he's basically taking a local anesthetic, the same $2 amount of anesthetic that goes into an epidural, ironically, and he's basically turning off the sympathetic nervous system. And when it turns back on, uh, 15 minutes later, 10 minutes later, it turns back on to the pre-trauma state. And the, the adult uh, trauma is normally on the right side. Uh, you have to wait a day to do the left side. So he does two injections. He turns off uh, the sympathetic nervous system. We don't go near the brain. But if you were to scan someone's brain that has PTSI, even if they just had it from chronic stress, you would see overactivity in the amygdala. You would do this injection. It would power down there. It was, it's like rebooting a computer. You turn it on, turns on 10 minutes later and it turns on at baseline. You, if you were to scan the brain again with an fMRI, you would see reduced activity in the amygdala. It's, uh, it's so, you know, it's kind of incredible, but when you think about it, it's really simple. You know, we as human beings have to have 
a universal kind of homogenous reaction to trauma or we don't survive as a species, right? We either have to kill the tiger or get away from the tiger probably in about 30 to 90 seconds. So if we all had different reactions, so it would have to be biological. And if you want in a little, if you want in a little bit, uh, Lisa, I can explain to you what those kind of eight, nine symptoms are. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, if you want to jump into that now, that would be great. Well, you know, one thing I will say is that one of the reasons I got involved in this project is because uh, Dr. Lipov had teamed up with a, um, a private equity firm to open up clinics all over the world using his protocols. So this has been around people. Once he started publishing on it in 2006, um, people started doing it. I mean, he's, he's being humble. The military, they're doing 3,000 of these a year at Fort Bragg alone. So I think the military is probably doing 15 to 20,000 of these a year, if you were to look at Walter Reed all over the world. And then Obama endorsed this back in 2010. Uh, he's done grand rounds at Walter Reed. He's done grand rounds at Womack, which is the most advanced military hospital in the world. It's been written up all over the world. It's mainstream. It's just been at the at the extremes when this really should be in the living room because that's where the majority of cases are. So when you look at what you know, what is it, right? What ha what ends up happening is when you have a an overwhelming traumatic experience, such as your buddy gets his head blown off in front of you, and the second largest cohort that finds is people that are really desperate find Dr. Lipoff. Okay, uh, or if you have a sexual assault. Um, your amygdala sends a signal to this to your sympathetic nervous system, these these nerves on each side of your neck and your select ganglion, and that's what jerks you into fight or flight. Well, if it's a normal thing where you swerve your car, or you slip, well, you come back to baseline an hour later, five hours later. But if it's overwhelming, too much, like uh, then uh, the system stays stuck in fight or flight, and then. These nerves are now in your neck are now sending the signal to your brain 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, seven days a week, uh, that your life is in jeopardy. And so the symptoms that would go along with that in the military, you know, they call it operator syndrome. I think 50% of the U.S. population has operator syndrome, and most of them don't even realize. They would never think they have trauma. They just know they don't feel right, or they know their husband or their children aren't acting right. So I'd love to roll through the symptoms real quick. Uh, okay, so operator syndrome is traditionally understood in the military as a combination of TBI, traumatic brain injury, and um, uh, an overactive sympathetic nervous system. But if, even if you take the TBI out and you just look at the, the nervous system, it's the same symptoms, right? So I, I believe, again, that 50% of the population of the U.S. and the world probably has operator syndrome. And a lot of that has to do with the modern world we live in. Okay, but so you have to look think of how would you feel if you were running from a tiger? What would the symptoms be? Well, if a tiger jumped out at you a thousand years ago in a South American jungle, you would you would have a tremendous amount of anxiety. You would have a hair trigger and react be reactive because you'd be like, where's the tiger going to come from? You would be hyper vigilant about the tiger. You would be hyper aroused about the tiger. You would have mild paranoia because where's the tiger? Where's the tiger? And you would have a sense of doom about the tiger. Ironically, you know, 25% of these guys that come back from Afghanistan that are engaged in combat come back with ED because you can't have sex if you're running from a tiger. And then in the military where people are trained to protect the ultimate form of flight is suicide. And in neighborhoods where I grew up, where, you know, life is a little cheaper or violence is acceptable, the ultimate form of fight is aggressive behavior or homicide, right? So 
the, you know, when you start going through those behaviors, you can start to see how so many of the things that we're medicating today that we're taking psilocybin for, all of these things are patches. You need, this is a, bro, this is a reset of the broken leg. And all of some of those, there's incredible therapeutics out there, and we don't want to take away from them because they're amazing and they're science-based, right? But what I'm trying to tell people is Dr. Lipov has figured out how to reset the leg, um, and you should reset the leg first, then do the therapy. And uh, yeah, uh, Dr. Lipov is the chief medical officer at the Stella Center, and they are now open. He has he is the most efficacious protocols in the world. If you're not getting it from a Stella Center, you're not getting it. I'm not an ambassador for them. I don't work for them. I just don't want, I want people to get what's efficacious. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to write this book with Dr. Lipov is because I didn't want people getting the 20-year-old treatment, the 10-year-old treatment. I wanted them to get all the modern protocols to have their life transformed. And that's really available at uh, the, the Stella Center. So, you know, I, I pushed the Stella Center. And also, they're the only ones opening up clinics all over the world. There's 35 clinics in the United States. They have a clinic in Israel. They have a clinic in Australia. And they're, they're more and more coming in Europe. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, Dr. Lipoff, one of the, Lipoff, one of the things that I found so fascinating, and, and I was really appreciated, actually, both of you being so candid about your own trauma. And Dr. Lipoff, if, don't tell us everything, because I want people to get the book, The Invisible Machine. It's towards the end of the book, you write, my trauma gave me misery. My misery made me a scientist. Just tell us a little bit about this. So I've, I've had a number of traumas. You say there's, it's a cliffhanger. How many traumas has he had? Oof. Quite a bit. So one of my, I would say one of my top two traumas was my mother taking her own life when I was an intern. So sorry. Thank you. Uh, anyway, so I believe I've done something good with that. So when I had people give me grief, tell me I was too stupid and that, or I, I wasn't doing the right things and I was doing this, and I go, oh, that's fascinating. Thank you for that input, but I just ignore them. Right. Uh, I, I think that pushed me. You know, it's like I read about 3,000 articles trying to understand why would this procedure, first of all, be done. Uh, it's been around since 1926, and it's like, why would it, was it, first of all, is it real? If it's real, which I knew it was because of helping patients, why would possibly, what would the possible mechanism? Because until I figured that out, nobody would take me seriously. So I think the persistence came from trying to avoid people like my mother killing herself. It's that simple. And then, you know, actually just now we had an article just came out, um, in a pretty good publication, where we took two couples. One was a special forces gentleman and his wife who had, so there's primary PTSD, which somebody has like, let's say military operations, you know, horrible things happen, comes back, give PTSD to the wife typically. So you can start to think of PTSD as infectious because you can actually catch PTSD from your spouse. The children can get PTSD. So what we're trying to do now, we're trying to treat the veterans, as uh, active duty personnel as well, as well as the families, including the children, and we were able to demonstrate on brain scans before and after there is a change in PTS side that you can actually see. And the other couple in that, in that uh, publication was a man that was falsely incarcerated in Ohio for 10 years over murder, which was ridiculous. Anyway, so to give you a direct answer, uh, you know, the, people ask me, when, you know, would if you, there's so many people that you are able to help, I mean, how does that make you feel? A, as a physician, I love that, number one. Number two, and I think my mother's smiling down from heaven and says, you know, you did something good with my problem. Oh, that's beautiful. 
Can I ask Eugene a question? No charge. <laughs> of course. <laughs> or part of it. Okay. Well, you know, one thing about, you know that's interesting about Eugene when I met him was uh, he, he, he what, what he failed to mention was that he was doing his surgery residency when his mother killed herself. And he had to drop out of being a surgeon because of concentration of the trauma that, of the effect of on him, right? Okay. And so I, I asked him one time, you know, would you have ever been this level of a scientist and a researcher if you had been busy doing surgery all the time and, 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 and innovating in that field? And I think he told me no. But one thing I think that uh, I'd love for Eugene to talk about is his childhood, because I think his childhood is, you know, in a really important, fascinating part of this story. Yeah, please do. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. Well, we gave away all my traumas. What? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, if I was still in surgery, first of all, I probably would invent some of the equipment used for surgery, but I wouldn't have any interest in doing this. I would have zero interest of getting in. Trying, you know, trying to go against the grain in medicine is not something for the weak of soul. Let me assure you, it is not something. You have to be persistent and consistent and believe in yourself. Kind of helps. Uh, but as far as the traumas, I think. But first of all, just to give you a backdrop, so my father had PTSD from PTSI from World War II. So he was in a squadron. Uh, their charming job was to drop torpedoes in German ships. So they had 10,000 people in the squadron, 100 made it home. So most of them were decimated. So he, they came home, he gave my mother PTSD or PTSI, he gave it to me and my brother. Um, so that eventually led to my mother's suicide, I believe. Um, but so growing up with him was challenging, shall we say. You can imagine, you know, there's interesting things and violence and that kind of stuff. And then he was military, ex-military, and he was also a surgeon. So surgeons are really not known for their warm and cuddlies, especially heart surgeons. I was so trying to get you to tell her about your, you know, the Ukraine and your I'm friends. getting there. Oh, okay, okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Okay. We're like Martin and Lewis. Okay. okay. Exactly. Come on down. Anyways, I'm just trying to explain the whole picture. Anyway, so, and then, so we were in Ukraine. I was born in Ukraine, about 100 miles south of Kiev. And that was one of the sites of major battle between USSR and Germany. So there was a lot of unexploded ordnance then. I was born in 58. So that was 12 years after the war end, or 13 years. So, so my friends and I found unexploded shell, which we didn't know what it was. It looked like a pipe. So my father tried to take away from them. Anyway, so they steal that. We go in the house. My father said, don't go with them. So they go there, and they start throwing this unexploded anti-personnel shell against a tree. Didn't do anything. So the genius is hit it against a rock. So one lost two legs, another one lost an arm and a leg. So that was kind of beginning of my, just, that was just a foretelling of where we went from there. So from there, um, we moved to Moscow, then we came to the United States. You know, changing societies and complete thinking at 14 years old, being a plump, poor kid is not the best thing in the world. I wouldn't recommend it for entertainment. Um, then I went to medical school. I got hit by a propeller blade when I was a uh, 14 medical student. And I was bleeding in the middle of the ocean. And the guy who hit me just watching me bleed. So I crawled into the boat, put pressure on bleeding points. And then um, fortunately, I was able to survive. 
and then uh, started surgical residency. Three months into it, I was doing a AAA, which is a big vessel in the belly, and I was covered with blood because we were like, we lost control of it a little bit. Anyway, so of course, I get the phone call from my father saying your mother just took her life. You know, just entertainment has never stopped. Yeah, well, you also grow up under the crush of the Soviet Union, the Iron Curtain, where you weren't allowed to practice your religion. His father was a doctor at a TB clinic, uh, getting paid less than a butcher because it was under the Iron Curtain. And he had to watch, you know, grow up watching people uh, uh, cough up blood. So I like to say that Dr. Lipov is, is the, driven by compassion for human beings and probably the most compassionate human being uh, I've ever met in terms of his research is driven by deep care for people. Um, you asked a really interesting question earlier. I don't know if Dr. Lipov wants to answer this one, but uh, about, you know, why do not people not know? You know, Max Planck, you know, I was I was in a, a conversation with Daniel Amen one time and he was, to, I asked him, you know, how come people don't embrace the things that can get them better? Uh, and he said that, and he showed me a, a quote from a Nobel laureate from the 40s in physics, Max Planck, who said that medical innovation is one in funerals. So, uh, but I think that the other reason uh, is, you know, I think, do you want to tell her the story of Semmelweis? Because I think Semmelweis is Yeah, huge... it's my favorite story, actually. Okay, you, you, okay, so this explains why people don't know. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, right. the, 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 the Planck's comment, I think, what, what Jamie meant as far as, Innovation started the funerals is that if people, what they mean is that there are people in science and medicine, which is science, get stuck in their path. The only way to change their path is for them to wait for them to die. A new generation will take over. So Summerwise is a great cautionary tale. People have asked me, it's like, you know, why do you have a, like this positive attitude, even though people are giving you all type of grief? So A... I love the results in patients. So ultimately, as a clinician, that that's where I'm. That's where I belong. Everything else is just noise to me. But the other part, which is kind of interesting, is um, so this gentleman. So you've heard of people washing hands, right? Doctors wash hands before surgery. So the history of that is kind of checkered. It's kind of interesting. So this guy was Hungarian physician who goes to Austria to become a physician. So he goes to medical school. He walks around and he noticed that when women deliver at home the chance of death is about one-third compared to hospital. And he goes to the doctors and goes, something's wrong. I don't know what's going on, but they're dying. So he uh, follows around. So it turns out in that day, bad humor was the pervasive theory. So basically, if you have a lot of, you probably heard some of this. Uh, no, no, no. So anyway, so um, basically, if it smells bad, it's bad, meaning something bad happens, whatever. Miracle happens, bad miracle. But then it turns out that the day in Austria, Austria, what they would do is they would dissect people, do autopsies, and walk over or run over, actually trying to avoid the bad humors following them, and deliver children. The problem is they were transferring bugs from the dead people to the women, and the women oh. would die of fever, right? Right. So, so he goes, you know, he published this article, similar to me, and he says, you know, you need to start washing your hands. And they're saying, no, you're calling us dirty. We hate that. No, no, no. They, one word or another, he got placed in the psych ward a month in after after that. So after a month after being admitted to the psych ward, he was beaten to death by the guards. Oh, God. 20 years later, 
Pasteur's figures out the germ theory, and they go, oh, of course we need to wash our hands. <sighs> so they named them posthumously after he's been dead for 20 years, Savior of Babies. Wow. So my point to my friends has always been, it's like, you know, hey, that guy didn't make it. He did have him. At least I'm still around, and at least people are starting to talk about it. That dragging me into the psych ward or beating me to death. So I, I'm ahead of the curve. <laughs> One of the yeah, that's that, true. One of the things that I think changes the game is that when is Dr. Lebov, uh, we're getting together with uh, partnering with Stella Center, being their chief medical officer, and making it so that everyone can get the most modern protocols uh, all over the country and all over the world. When uh, ten years ago, uh, it was about seventy percent effective in the relief of the most extreme post-traumatic stress symptoms, which are an injury, eye. Um, I'll keep repeating that. Um, With the modern protocols that Dr. Lipov has developed between uh, (laughs) um, himself and a doctor um, in Annapolis, Maryland, named Mulvaney, um, between the two of them, uh, mostly Dr. Lipov, but Mulvaney's done some incredible things. It's now up to 85 to 90%. When That's I first incredible. spoke to, to Daniel Amen about it, and uh, he was telling, hey, there's a paper here that says it's, you know, 70% effective uh, in the relief of the most extreme post-traumatic systems. I was trying to get him to help me. And he and I said, no, 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 that's old paper. It's 10-year-old paper. And that's uh, it's 85 to 90 now. And then Daniel Amen said, uh, you don't understand. It's 70%. This is Nobel Prize winning work. I'll help you. And that, wow. and that became how he became a partner in the book and how we started to explore. One of the things I think the book does really, really well is it explains the, the, the relationship between um, the reset of the post-traumatic stress injury, which is a safe, uh, simple procedure that takes about five to 10 minutes um, without real side effects after the first day. I mean, you're drowsy and stuff like that. Um, and, but it explains it in relation to all these other modalities, right? You know, like ketamine works and Dr. Lipov could explain that which the data really isn't in on psilocybin. Alcohol ravages the brain. I'm not interested in the morality of any of it. I'm interested only in the data and what's healthy, but, um, there's so many things that we're doing that are a patch. And what's also incredible is like, there's these incredible therapies out there that work, talk therapy, EMDR, RTM, you can go on and on. And one of the things that we found is that when people do this, if they've been doing other therapies for 10, 20 years, people will say all those therapies kick in. They start to kick in. That work kicks in. The other thing is we hear is we hear from psychologists all the time that somebody that's been getting talk therapy for five years gets their nervous system reset. And um, all of a sudden they make more progress in a month than they've made in five years. And when, you know, one thing I think a lot about, and I think this is my contribution you know, a lot of times people are saying, why is an artist writing a book with a scientist, a prominent scientist, you know? And I think that my contribution was when I first was at Fort Bragg and I came across this term operator syndrome, which is associated with special forces guys that carry chronic stress or what they call allostatic load too long, which just means chronic stress. Um, even if they're not in a firefight, if they, they're away from their family, they might not come home. They're thinking about IEDs every day. They, they, even without a, a battle, they will get, they will come home with a post-traumatic stress injury. And when I, and I'm, I, I listed those symptoms earlier of operator syndrome, 
which is from allostatic load, anxiety, hair trigger, reactivity, hypervigilance, hyperarousal, mild paranoia, sense of doom, ED. I didn't see soldiers. I saw the neighborhoods where I grew up. I grew up in Mexican immigrant neighborhoods in uh, inner city Los Angeles. So that's what got me curious. Um, and so I thought, well, gosh, I wonder if, if that the people that I, I, I can, I didn't know anybody that I grew up with that didn't have these symptoms, including myself. So, you know, one of the things I, th I think a lot about is two things. One is um, if you have, you know, a person that grows up in poverty, you can't grow up in inner city poverty, not rural poverty. You probably grew up with fine. You don't have this, but inner city poverty, comparison culture, synthetic or artificial environments were not designed to live like that. Uh, you're going to have this 100% of the time. That's 100% population. Okay. And say you're a police officer and you're, so you're a first responder and you're dealing with allostatic load every day. You're going to have this. So say there's a, a minor traffic altercation, right? Where this guy pulls him over for, you know, broken taillight. And then all of a sudden it turns into a life or death situation. That's because both people have this gangle of nerves in their neck telling their brain that a simple innocuous situation is life or death. And when you see this, and I saw this in my neighborhood growing up, you know, you people get into an argument over a cheeseburger and somebody, it's innocuous, it's banal, it's boring, right? But one person's going to the morgue, the other person's going to prison for the rest of their life because of, and the, this gangle of nerves in their neck and lying to our brains. And, you know, we're, um, you know, we're, our, our laws are based on intent. If our biology is taking us over without our choice, you know, are we really operating in a just way within our laws based on science, right? So these are the kind of things that keep me, I think about uh, a lot. But the thing I think about the most is I think about how you know, and Dr. Libov can talk about this from a science perspective. You know, we've just gotten through uh, COVID-19, which I'm sick of talking about. I, even I hear the word, I'm like, let's talk about something else. But I do think that that was in, I was at a birthday party this, this week in a kid's pool party. And, uh, um, you know, these people were telling me about the how they moved to Hawaii during COVID because of the stress it was putting on their family. We've just globally come under this incredible period of allostatic load. I also think we're, our evolutionary biology up until for 50,000 years, up until 300 years ago, we were agrarian. Nature mitigates against the sympathetic nervous system, right? So 300 years, we live in these artificial boxes. We get into a roving artificial box to go to another artificial box where we work all day. Then we get back in the roving artificial box to go back to our artificial box. We're pummeled with digital information and bad news. Uh, the, 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 uh, the news organizations use blood, sex, violence, whatever, to keep us as, as bait, to attention bait. So uh, then we have COVID, then we have politics. And so we're constantly carrying this allostatic load. And that's why I think um, it's, it's a massive swath of the population. There's probably a lot of people listening to this going, you know, I don't think I had trauma or, you know, my husband didn't have trauma or I, you know, I don't traumatize my kids, but you know, the symptoms that, that J Jamie just named, we have, you can get this from bullying. Oh yeah. You can, yeah. You can get this from your father, not hugging you. You can get this from your mother needling you. You can get this from your father, always disappointed in you, not getting, uh, your emotional needs met as a as a child. So um, that, to me, I'm very interested in the military. I'm very interested in people that are suffering from deep trauma. But the largest group of people that have this 
are the people that are listening going, well, I didn't have trauma, but I have those symptoms. And those like, and what I, and they think those symptoms are just part of them because they've always lived like that. That's how I felt before I got this treatment from Dr. Lipov. And it's the most transformative thing that I would ever have ever done. And I would just want everyone to, it went from like living life through punching through a paper bag, always having to deal with my body, but it was, I'd never not done it. So I didn't know that's what it was, but when it was gone, oh my gosh, Lisa, when it was gone, I'm a person that, you know, it's kind of like uh, what, you know, Nietzsche said, okay? Uh, what does not kill us makes us stronger, okay? So for me, I came from an environment that probably should have killed me. It crushed a lot of the people that I grew up with in my family. And uh, I wanted to get out. And I and so I over, I, I dealt with, you know, childhood abandonment from birth. I didn't really go to school. I was... Uh, semi-literate until I was in my late teens, till I was 19. At 19, I got an opportunity uh, to not be poor and to focus on my studies. And it turned out I was a closet smart person. And, and, in, and in five years, I went from doing remedial classes at a community college to graduating from the London School of Economics. So I've had this very extreme ex experience of, of a kind of slum poverty that is hard to describe. It's third world, you know, roaches the size of cats and and five people in a roach infested, decaying apartment with no air conditioning in 1970s LA drought weather, right? Um, so just not having parents around and just not having any support. So the way I got out of that was uh, I did forward motion. Don't ever look back, just go forward. And I'm sure there was a hypervigilance of my trauma drove me. I think hypervigilance of trauma can drive you to be a CEO or an addict, depending on how it manifests. And so when I, you know, I started getting the success eight, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago that I kind of always craved. And I was even more miserable. You know, to me, it was like away from pain. If pain and ignorance meant, if, if ignorance and poverty meant pain, then affluence and education meant pleasure or happiness. So I got those things in every way one could imagine, you know, a, 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 you know, a decade-ish ago, maybe a little. And, and the more I got those things, um, the more miserable I was because now I didn't have a reason. I mean, it was certain ways, in certain ways, they everything intensified. So that was for the first time in my life, I just started to look back, but I never thought I was, had been traumatized. That's what's so crazy with everything I'd been through. I went to therapy for the first time. I got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress injury or post-traumatic stress. And I laughed at the therapist, like, you're crazy. I don't have that. That's for crazy people. And then she said, have you listened to the stories you've been telling me? And my whole life narrative fell apart. So when I found out about Dr. Lipov, um, I thought, wow, this is a physical injury and this could be there could be a physical solution to this. And that was far less for me because it wasn't stigmatizing. Right. I was willing to do that. You know, when you grow up like me, you don't go to doctors. So the idea that I would go in the middle of COVID to Chicago when nobody was on planes and do a kind of uh, you know, medical procedure that's still, you know, that's not as known. It, you know, listen, in five years, this is going to be as popular as LASIK. Good. Okay? Um, but uh, it's it's happening. But at that time, you know, and that's one of the reasons we wrote the book was to bring it into the zeitgeist. Um, you know, that was just, uh, I was, I was, uh, once I realized that I was willing to tell myself the truth about being victimized and being traumatized, then I was hell bent on finding a solution. 
And I was very fortunate that I knew a military doctor that is the chief psychology officer at the Stella Center. And she told me about this and I, I uh, started researching again. It's like the best days of my life were the worst days of my life. Whenever some vic incredible victory, you know, would happen, you know, um, I would get a big, massive art contract. I would accomplish something. Rather than feeling joy and accomplishment, all I would be thinking about would be um, what could go wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yeah. So to have that removed, and now when something good happens, um, I'm just experiencing joy. Um, I was nervous to do it as an artist because I thought, well, my edge will go away. But I'm a thousand times better than I was. There's no biological injury between me and my creativity. I'm feeling emotions deeper. I mean, it just like I'm so quick to laugh when I'm with friends or I'm watching a movie and I get teary eyed. I mean, you almost could describe it. I mean, this sounds cheesy, but you almost could describe it as the ability to experience um, joy. And I and, and the crazy thing was in the last two years, two and a half years, I sent maybe 10 of my kind of well-to-do white CEO friends that never associated themselves with trauma. I sent them to Chicago. And one for one, um, it was transformative. And one guy who's the son of the grandson of a very well-known billionaire who I won't name, uh, he didn't his his father was overindulged was an addict, died young. He was also, because he was an addict, he was never there for my friend. And this guy never associated himself with trauma, but he had all the symptoms. He, I convinced him to go to Chicago. He canceled on me two or three times. One time I was arriving there to support him. The third time he got there, and this is probably the, the time where I really realized this had to go to the mainstream. We did it, this guy had childhood trauma, which is the left side, just second day. You know, we did the right side. He didn't get much out of it. And he said, oh, I don't think this is going to work. We just said, go in the next day. He went in the next day and I was waiting, you know, in the, the downstairs of the, the medical center with uh, his wife. And um, uh, we're, you know, she was, you know, on pins and needles. Dr. Lipov walked down the stairs. We said, how is she doing? How's he doing? This guy that never associated himself with trauma, but he had all the symptoms. Uh, and she's, and he said, uh, Dr. Lipov said, he's, he says he's doing great. And the wife burst into tears. And um, I said, whoa, 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 we don't even know if this worked yet. And then the three of us started talking downstairs. And while we were talking, this is one of those magic moments in life. A young woman, very pretty young woman walked in, beaming under her mask, petite woman. And she saw Dr. Lipov and she ran over to him and she leaned in and gave him a hug that looked like it lasted about 30 seconds. And then turned to my friend and I, because we're waiting for her husband who had just gotten the procedure and said, the miracle man and ran downstairs, which is where accounting was. So I thought for sure she was an employee. And I said, how much are you paying her, Dr. Lipov? <laughs> she, she works in accounting. And he said, no, she's one of the worst sexual assault cases we ever had. Yesterday, she wouldn't let me touch her or be alone in a room with her. And then it just compounded from there. You know, he walked, our friend, my friend walked downstairs and he was walking different. We probably got about 10 feet past, away towards the, we started walking back to the hotel. We probably got about 10 feet away from the medical center. And he said, I just have to stop. If this was the only reason I was ever meant to know you, uh, this is why I was meant to know you. And then when I was visiting his house in Hilton Head, 
you know, a few months later, his mother told me, yeah, he's different with the kids. He's a present father. He's an engaged father. He's an emotional father. And she was saying it so passively, the grandmother. And all I could think was, Dr. Lipov might have just stopped three generations of emotional trauma. You're not going to reset, uh, um, like, like, it's a broken leg. So you can't, you're, you can mitigate against it with yoga and psilocybin and all those things, but they're a patch. To reset the leg, and Dr. Lipov can explain the science of this, you actually have this overall, this kind of over nerve growth in the sympathetic system that's lying to the brain. He could explain that. And you're not going to out yoga that. You're not going to out psilocybin that. You're not going to out talk therapy that. Even though those things are massively important and massively huge, he can explain the, the physical injury to you and why it has yeah, to be Yeah, I'm glad because I was thinking that. Like I thought it, reading the book, it was so fascinating about the stellate ganglion. And I've taken anatomy and physiology years ago. And I mean, those are familiar terms, but I had no idea what was how they were reacting to traumas. So if you can expound on that, Dr. Lipov. If you look at what happens during trauma, so fight and flight system gets turned on. So fight and flight system or sympathetic oh, okay. system sits in a cervical spine in the neck and goes up to the brain. So there are actually, that's been shown. So when overwhelming amount of trauma happens or multiple trauma happens, what it does activates the growth of the nerves in the brain or fight and flight nerves, sympathetic nerves. So let's say there are four to start with, now you got eight. Each one of those produces norepinephrine. So if you take a sample of the fluid around the brain in a soldier, let's say, with PTSD or PTSI, norepinephrine level will be higher than normal. So we know that occurs. So when we put local anesthetic into the neck, what it does numbs up sympathetic nerves, two things happen. Immediate, immediately, you stop pumping out norepinephrine. So now, norepinephrine gets absorbed in the brain. So in about 10, 15 minutes later, the norepinephrine level drop, so people feel calm and wonderful, which is amazing to see. The secondary effect is it suppresses a factor called NGF, nerve factor, which is neurotropin. Basically, a fancy term, but that's something, a substance that makes those nerves grow. And as long as it's present here, those extra nerves, the eight nerves, are still present. When you put local anesthetic onto the ganglia, that NGF drops, and it takes away the growth. That's called pruning. So instead of being eight, now it's back to four. So you're not pumping out the norepinephrine. So local anesthetic lasts eight hours. So it's gone in eight hours, but the effect on the brain and norepinephrine levels can last for years. The longest outlier right now has been 17 years. Oh, wow. Now, the fact that it works for 85% of people, right? 85 to 90. For the people that it doesn't work for, does it have to do with their biology, their genetics, the type of trauma, or it's just random? So the question is, why would it fail? So the answer is, I'll give you a peripheral answer. I think in five years, we'll know. And I'll tell you why I believe that. Number one, I'm about to start doing a study about uh, aging and biological effects of PTSD and reversal using this approach, using epigenetic clocks, Harworth clocks, and things like that. So I think they could be epigenetic predictors. So let's say basically certain people may have just sticky, sticky sympathetic systems. So if I had, let's say, $20 million and access to a number of institutions, we will already have that answer. But because you need to do rat models, you need to do neuroscience or investigation, I can 
you know, plus, you know, I, I, I am a clinical scientist, right? But a true neuroscientist, true neuroanatomist, if I would set in that goal and I had the financial capability, we will figure it out. Uh, but right now, you know, we just have to be good enough so what we have. And then the other question that related to your question is what do you do if it fails, right? That's another question. As a clinician, you have to have a protocol. So we have protocols for that. That involves ketamine. It involves other things. It involves further study. It involves functional MRIs. The thing that we are currently looking on, what I would love to do, I mean, I'd love to treat, I'd like 100% success, but there's no such thing. And the other question is, how do you define success also? So sometimes people go, oh, it didn't work at all. And then the wife hits him in the head and goes, are you kidding me? <laughs> you're sleeping, you're being nice. The kids like you again. How is it a failure? What's wrong with you? You see what I mean? So, oh. so what we need is a biomarker, which we're working toward to be able to one of the clinical biomarkers, so NYU, we are able to get funding for NYU to do a functional MRI before and after the procedure. So potentially you could just say, hey, you know, those guys who are saying they're not better, their amygdala does not lie. You can actually look at that, right? So that gets, that opens up another thing. What's the diagnosis? How do you follow through? There's a lot of fine points to that, but, you know, it's a complex answer, but I, I you know, I'll, I'll stick with success rate about 80%. That's pretty good compared to most medical things. Now, Dr. Lee Pop, I just wanted to mention, I know you have to go in a couple minutes. Uh, Jamie's going to stick around for a little bit. Is there anything you wanted to add? And you're always yes. welcome because this yes. is amazing. Yes, I have something I'd like to add. So we are on a big push to get PTSD changed to PTSI. Okay. So if you go on my website, drugenlipov.com, there are two things you can do. One, you can sign a petition, which would be great. So that petition is going to go to the president of the APA, American Security Association. That's going to define that. And then the steering committee. So what I want them to do is I want them to put up what I submitted for public review, and then you have people start actually talking about it. So I think my goal is it was in 12 months to get it done. I'm hoping because I think it's going to truly will save lives. Number two, oh, yes. you can buy a pin, which I think is a beautiful pin. Yes, it is. Uh, but proceeds of that will go to Race PTSD now, which is not for profit we're associated with. It's actually, that we actually treat people through that, that raise funds for that. So if you can watch, look at that, sign into my Instagram, DR uh, Eugene Lipov. This way you can follow this process. The more of that we can do, it, it's going to take everyone because. You know, Frank tried 12 years ago, tried to change the name without success. But this is a different time, and I think it's doable now. Dr. Lipov, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. And you're, are you in Chicago? Yes, ma'am. Okay, I'm coming. Yeah, I've been meaning to come there. Beautiful area. I'd if love you decide Chicago. to do it, go to get it from the, get it from the inventor. That's what I'm, that's okay. what I'm, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, you can get a hold of me anytime, and we'll figure it out. Okay, great, great. All right, well, thank you so much. Jamie, you're sticking around, right? I have more questions. I'm sticking around, I'm here. I have tried so many skin and hair care products. I can't even tell you, it, it's insane. I mean, at one point, the closet in my bathroom was full with every imaginable product. And then I found what works, and that is oneearthbodycare.com. 
I am in love with their shampoo and conditioner bars completely changed the game for my daughter who had a hard time finding a good shampoo and conditioner for her hair. Their face and body is amazing. I love their day and night oil, all natural ingredients, of course, and all of this essential oils, really great stuff. And of course, the deodorant has changed my life because I am no longer smelly. So go check them out now at oneearthbodycare.com. Once you have had a wonderful dog, a life without one is a life diminished. That's a quote by author Dean Coots, and I couldn't agree more. I want my wonderful dogs to live as long as possible, and what they eat plays a huge role in their health and longevity. Kibble is full of seed oils that wreak havoc on our dog's health. They damage their microbiome, which affects digestion, oral health, their skin and coat, and more. And that's why I feed my dog Benji Yumwoof. Their air-dried food is GMO-free and has an inflammation-reducing recipe with omega-3 and coconut oil. It's all the benefits of fresh food without the fridge, carbs, fillers, seed oils, and other inflammatory ingredients you see in other brands. Yum Woof obsessively crafted a healthy, low-carb food with humanely raised USDA meat, eggs, and other non-GMO superfoods that my dog loves. Try the number one air-dried dog food for gut health for 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. That's 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. Go to www.yumwoof.com. That's www.yumwoof.com. You and your dog will be so glad you did. Do you have to have PTSI? I don't have post-traumatic stress injury. It's it's symptomatic, right? If you have the symptoms, get it. But if you don't have the symptoms, but you know, you want to be careful with that because like, like I said, I am somebody that was totally in denial. The symptoms were, I'd been abandoned at birth. I'd been living like that for so long. I didn't know any other way. I didn't even know if it would work on me. I didn't think I had a baseline. Okay. And you know, a really good story that I would say about that is the guy, there's a guy that I send who's a really successful CEO here in Portland. um, And he had a great childhood, but he had been bullied at a particular age. And then he had some really harsh things with a particular business with a bad business partner that was, there was a few year period where he was carrying extreme uh, allostatic load. Okay. But he, you know, he, but he was symptomatic, right? He, you know, so I convinced this guy to go to Chicago. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Maybe three or four days before he leaves, he calls me and he's like, Hey, listen, I'm really sorry, man. I got to tell you something. I said, what? He goes, my wife and his wife is an, uh, an executive administrator at, uh, Nike uh, is really mad at you. <laughs> I was like, well, and I go over to their house for dinner, you know. I'm like, well, what, what do you mean she's mad at me? Well, she's kind of upset that you've convinced me to go to Chicago to do this thing. Uh, and um, and she's coming with me. So, you know, it may be a little awkward. So I didn't talk to them before I left. Um, the day after uh, the first procedure, um, she called me. He called me and he said, uh, you know, my wife uh, could tell within two, three hours that I was different. And she's eternally grateful and she wants to come back and do it for herself and bring uh, two of the kids. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's yeah. Incredible. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's the, the, the thing that's tricky about it is you can't see it. That's what we call the book, The Invisible Machine. But if you 
um, again, if, you know, we have so many people that we, you know, put on medications because they have these symptoms, but we don't have this obvious trauma. Don't pay attention to the trauma because, you know, everybody is gets it differently the same way a broken leg is different. Like, well, how is your leg going to break compared to somebody else's? I don't know. Like, how thick is your, what is your bone density? Right. Yeah, that's uh, true. Did you get a fracture? Did you get a spiral tib fib break? You know, like it's a spectrum, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the crazy. Yeah. So um, and but I was really smart, you know. So, yeah, it's been it's just been interesting. I mean, I don't want to give too much away in the book, but there's story after story like that oh, in the amazing. book. You know, we sent oh, there was a housewife we asked to go. Well, more than a housewife. I mean, she has a master's degree in social work and she's a housewife, <laughs> uh, but she was really leery, didn't want to do it. Her husband was a friend of mine, but she had IBS. And uh, she went and did this to my insistence and her IBS calmed down and went away. And she had never had trauma. She'd just been needled by her mom. Right. Well, that is traumatic. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. Like I was talking to my husband about the book yesterday, how, how amazing. And he was thinking too, that trauma were just like these huge catastrophic things and not yeah. looking at, you know, having an alcoholic parent or being neglected or, you know, things like that. Like I was definitely. That, it's the death, but it's the thousand cuts. It's a that, thousand cuts. That I'm worried about. You know, listen, you know, let me say this thing about the book, The Invisible Machine. Okay. Sure. And why it, I decided to drop two years of my life as an artist and, and work on this. Um, what, what really was the changing factor in my understanding of the world two and a half years ago is that trauma is not mental. It's biological. Okay, and most of the, the the symptoms that we deal with, where we think someone is acting weird or crazy, if you read Daniel Amen's, you know, it work. You I've know, had Amen like, on the show. Uh, by okay, the way. okay, great, great. I love him. I love him. Yeah, me too. And his wife, by the way. Oh, yeah. she's amazing. She's amazing. She's Tom, yeah. So, yeah. so to me, um, I want people to understand what is going inside their bodies and the bodies of their children and their spouses or their parents. What's what's going on inside you? There, what's of their loved ones or themselves. I don't, I think one of the things that we succeeded to do in this book is I don't think, I think we've written maybe, and there's a lot of people that worked on this book. There's, we had an incredible collaborative writer that helped us make it, put it all together and make it work named Holly Lawrence. Yeah, we amazing. would not have worked without her. Who's a subject matter expert in post-traumatic stress and false incarceration. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a team. It's not me. Um, but, I don't, you can't read this book and not understand your biology and your, with the, what you're feeling in your head as a biological reaction. And even if I didn't convince someone to do the symptom, you know, like you have a book like Body Keeps the Score. Now what? Right. If the body keeps the score, the invisible machine, the nervous system is the, is the scorekeeper. Right. <laughs> yeah. The invisible <laughs> machine explains what the body, what is, what's happening in the body. And if, you know, one of the things is there's a cascade of physiological yeah. injuries, physiological problems, autoimmune disease, cancer, orthopedic problems that come from having an overactive sympathetic. Can I explain that for two seconds? Of course. Yeah. And I have, uh, I have Hashimoto's. I got joint issues. I'm a mess. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, like I said, so, you know, one thing I, I would, I would say again, because I didn't think I had the symptoms because I'd lived with them so long. Also, if you're really healthy, you can mitigate against them. You know, you have somebody like, I meet a lot of yoga instructors that have this and they, and they're basically evening themselves out every day. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to just do yoga because you love yoga, not because you're constantly having to patch yourself every day. But if you think about it, you know, we're not, 
designed to live in unnatural environments in terms of our evolutionary biology. That's why I think it's such a large swath of the population. I think synthetic environments are giving this to us, you know, sure. um, but, um, you know, God, where was I going? I, where was I? I lost my train of thought, but, you know, but basically, um, you know, yeah, I was going to talk about the immune system and, and right, is, yes. is if you're, if you're over, is, is if you're, if your sympathetic is overactive, if you're stuck in fight or flight, we're designed to live with a tiger about to eat us for about 30 to 90 seconds where we either need to be eaten by the tiger or, or kill the tiger or get away from the tiger. Right. Right. Um, so we're not designed to be living like that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 when we're like eating, you know, you know, uh, potato chips, watching Netflix. So, so what happens is when the sympathetic services system is overactive, you're releasing all sorts of things, extra cortisol, weight gain. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, um, but one of the, the primary things that it does is it discombobulates or disrupts the scavenger system in the body that destroys, you know, cancer cells and other cells for disease. Mm, right. And so it, it, uh, it ages you. So, uh, oh, yeah. so w when you, when you repair the invisible machine um, and you reset the sympathetic nervous system, um, you allow the you allow the, the immune system to work again. So yeah, there's one guy that's survived cancer uh, in the book, and he will 100% tell you um, that he uh, believes that he got cancer because of uh, a disrupted sympathetic system. Oh yeah, my mom 100%. She had a bipolar mother who wouldn't take medication, in and out institutions, lots of stress and trauma, and she died at 57. Yeah, and so the book is narrative nonfiction. It reads like a novel. I just want people to understand what's going on inside their bodies. Yeah, and, it's and, so and, good. And, yeah, and if all I got was the people to understand that it's biological, right. then they're going to treat everyone that they come across with that is is acting a little weird differently. You know, if like now when I see people that bug me, I mean, it's completely changed my life. This is what I'd probably end with kind of, and I'll do whatever you want, Lisa. But like before when people would, I would have a beef with someone or somebody would aggravate me. I would just be so judgmental and I would think they were crazy or whatever. Now, anytime I see somebody that doesn't operate in a way that makes any sense, all I see is biology. So my empathy, my compassion for people has been completely transformed. And that's what I want for people. I want, I really believe that it, even if people didn't go do this procedure, if they read the book, um, they'll, they'll, they can never see the world the same again. Well, I know two people with complex PTSD. That's what I had. Oh, okay. So that's okay. Cause I was wondering if it's beyond just PTSI but it's complex. So it means multiple, multiple abuse after abuse after, you know, or trauma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's what I had. No, that's what I'm talking about. That, that's what I'm talking about by a thousand cuts. That's complex PTSD. I carried allostatic load as a child from birth. Right. So, so I had that, I mean, um, so uh, yeah, I think that the majority of people that have this have some version of complex PTSD. They carried chronic stress or chronic allostatic load for too long. I mean, you know, Nadine Burke Harris has done incredible research, this physician in Oakland, where she's shown that 
The leading cause of disease in adults is childhood trauma, their ACEs score. Oh, of course. I was going to bring up the ACEs. That's really important. Adverse childhood experience. Yeah. And I believe that, that, that the mechanism is the overactive sympathetic. So if the body keeps the score, this is the scorekeeper. Yeah. There, you know, there's so much in the book and, and you got to it a little bit and I'll let you go, but yeah. I was just fascinated. Uh, I have, let me back up. I have a very close friend in prison and I, I knew the prison system was ridiculous in terms of, you know, he gets 10 minutes of therapy a month. <laughs> Everyone around him, he's like, everybody around me is completely traumatized and PTSI, you know, D and I talked to him about the PTSI, but and you talk about that and in the prison system. And there's this great sheriff, Alyssa Gregory, that you mentioned. Well, I have story after story about that. I mean, when I saw operator syndrome, as I was saying earlier in the conversation, be the symptoms of people coming back from war and I didn't see warriors. I saw my neighborhood. I became obsessed with getting into a jail and interviewing murderers that maybe committed an impulse crime when they were 20. And to see, I wanted to know. Would a murderer that committed an impulse crime when they were 20 because they had this from childhood poverty have the same symptoms as a war hero or somebody coming back from Afghanistan? I wanted to know. So I found, I met a black female sheriff, the ultimate unicorn, uh, who was the first woman and the first black person ever to be uh, elected sheriff in this town in Virginia since the town had been incorporated over 400 years ago in 1410. And I met her on a brain health town hall. And I convinced her after months of negotiation to let me go in, in there with a film crew and see if this was true. Um, so um, I'm completely convinced that, uh, I mean, 90% of people that are in prison self-identify as being having drug and alcohol problems. You know, right. so which is self-medication. Yeah, yeah, which is, exactly. Like, and that's you know what Kabor Mate talks about, which is if somebody, if you see an addict, because I grew up judgmental of addicts because I grew up with them. So if you see an addict, I used to see somebody that was you know a potential um, threat to me or a potential something disgusting from my childhood. I mean, I hate to say that, you know, no, it's, it's embarrassing. Okay. Um, but now all I see is somebody trying to. There's no such like I don't see an addict the way. I don't really even see them as an addict anymore. I just see them as a person trying to regulate their nervous system. And then when you see somebody that's doing something, that's all they're doing. Now we can reset it. Right. right? Yeah. And absolutely. I can get, and there's so many cases, you know, there's a guy in the book that was, yeah. So I, there's so many cases in the book of somebody that was suicidal for 20 years. They did everything. They went and did the reset and they just went back to their family and their life like a regular person. We have story after story after story. And Dr. Lipov gets to live on that assembly line where they're just coming off every day like that. And so I'm sure it's, you know, powerful for him, but you know, just, there's no way you can read this book and not understand the biology of your own body and your own disease and, and, and understand, um, uh, you know, it'll change the way that you see people move through the world and look at yourself. You know, I can't tell you how much shame. I mean, I had a lot of shame from how I grew up that I got rid of because it was like, okay. Uh, you know, because now it's biological. So like, I'm not going to feel shame about a broken leg. Right. So exactly. it just, it's, it, it's, a, it changes the game in terms of the concepts in it. Um, and so, um, you know, it's been my, you know, I'm just very, very fortunate to have met this, uh, uh, doctor. Uh, oh yeah. The other thing, God, I wanted to say something else about, you oh, know, sure. just the prison, Man, <laughs> I mean, a lot of these prisons are worse than where you would like leave your dog. It's worse than a dog kennel. And one of the guys that we, you know, um, 
we're not designed to live in this state of fight or flight for more than, like I said, 30 to 90 seconds. So, um, it, uh, yeah, uh, I, I just want people, I, I think it has, a, this book is a, a book of social change. Yes, and, absolutely. And, it, and even if you don't get the procedure from here on out, you'll see what's going on with the people that you love and yourself as biological. And I think that that can have a huge impact on how we all see the world and policy and it just reverberates from there. Well, you're amazing. I'm so glad that you came on. I tell you, Jamie, this this book really. I think I wish we could just make everybody read it. Well, yeah, I mean that's and that's the same. You know, the thing that you know, I just want to say to you, you know, if you're listening to this and and it resonates with you, you know, this is my second book, and you know, I'm not, I don't want to. But you know, you said something at the top of this thing, like how come everyone doesn't know about this? How how come everyone isn't talking about this? And they're starting to. But my, my thing is, is if you buy this book and you you have the same view of what Lisa saying, <laughs> like it does, it speaks to you. Please, please, please spread the word. Please, please, please tell everyone about it. Because, you know, the bodies keep the score. In my opinion, that book changed the way that we see the world. I think that, you know, when that, you know, we before that book, people did not see um, their, you know, their trauma is physical or by, 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 you know, they, they, they did not see trauma as something that was hurting them. Right. Yeah. This book cinches, you know, is the sequel to that in a way we know that trauma is biological. So if it speaks to you, uh, please, please, please spread the word. That's what I would ask. Cause that's, you were asking like that. If you, if it resonates with you, please share it. That's what I would yes. say. I couldn't put it down. It's 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 a great read. The Invisible Machine, the startling truth about trauma and the scientific breakthrough that can transform your life. Eugene Lipov, MD, and Jamie Mustard. All right, tell us all the ways to find out about you and the clinics and the whole thing. Okay, if you get this, get this from Stella Center. Uh, I'm not an ambassador for them. And that's S-T-E-L-L-A? Yeah, Stella Center, Google Stella Center, stellacenter.com. Okay. Um, you can go to dreugenelipov.com or just Google his name, Dr. Eugene Lipov. His website will come up. It's a massive resource. I'm an artist. Uh, so, uh, you know, a huge part of my first book, The Iconist, is about using, is about the mechanics of what caught the, the hidden rules of why, what caused something to stand out or why we notice something or ignore another. It's the economics of attention. Oh, it's a Malcolm Gladwell book. So in a lot of ways, The Invisible Machine is a proof of concept of my first book. Right. So is, is how to amplify something in a world overloaded with digital content. Okay. Um, so you can find me, uh, Jamie Mustard, the artist. And I believe that art, you know, and I is, is a, is a, it amplifies things. And, and so the reason I agreed to do this and, and, and did it was because I thought rather than taking 30 years for people to know, then in 30 months or three years, we can make, using art, we can make this known all over the world. That's why I chose to, work with Dr. Lipov. So you can, if you want to find out more about me, you can go to Iconist, I-C-O-N-I-S-T dot L-T-D. Um, and you can always send me a message. I love to hear from people. So if I resonate with you, if you want to have a conversation, I respond to everybody. Shoot me an email. Fantastic. Oh my gosh. This, 
You know, I love doing this show because it can change people's lives. Again, not being hyperbolic because you might discover something. And I really, really hope people will get the book, The Invisible Machine, read the book, share this interview with your friends, right? Yeah. And it's in every Barnes and Noble. You could walk in every Barnes and Noble and grab it. It's available. All books are sold. So you can get it everywhere. Awesome. You know, just the fact that, you know, I know two people with complex PTSD, and then I know other people with regular PTSD. And then, oh, one last question. Can it help with generalized anxiety disorder? If you don't I have mean, PTSD, listen, you know, anxiety, extreme anxiety if, is the leading cause of suicide. It's flight. Yes. General okay. anxiety oh is the most common cause. Okay. okay that's what I thought. And depression okay. is too. But I, the only reason I didn't use depression on that list, because that's part of it, is I do not believe that depression is a symptom. I think it's a manifestation of the other nine or 10 symptoms that I said. When you, if you feel anxiety, hair trigger, reactivity, hypervigilance, hyperalgia, mild paranoia, sense of doom, you're going to be depressed. Of course. <laughs> okay. So, but I think depression is the manifestation of all the others. So yes, anxiety is the primary thing that I see uh, uh, again and again and again and again. If you don't like that, and if I look at how my own life has been transformed, the, the relief and the, and the dissipation of anxiety is the primary thing I got out of it. So rather than mask the problem, reset it. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Everybody, go get the Invisible Machine. Keep coming back to Health Power and be sure to check out Dog Eared as well. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.